Welcome to Design Conscious, a podcast exploring diversity and leadership in environmental sustainability in the built environment. My name is Sarah Lawler. I am a Sydney-based architect, and through this series, I speak to sustainability leaders working across a variety of different organisations related to the built environment, including design, construction, research and investment, with an aim to learn about the impact of sustainability leadership. This podcast is supported by the 2020 International Women's Day Scholarship, awarded by NARWIC, the National Association of Women in Construction, which has facilitated this research into gender equity and diversity in sustainability leadership. Today I am joined by Dr. Samantha Hall, Principal Director at Campus Intuition, helping universities better understand the student experience by developing new methods to improve built environment design and planning. Recognised as one of WA's 40 Under 40, Sam is an innovator. Following a leap to industry from academia, where she studied environmental science, completed a PhD in sustainable cities and buildings, and undertook postdoctorate research into evidence-based decision-making outcomes for design and construction. Sam joined me from Perth, 37 weeks pregnant, for a conversation about overcoming imposter syndrome on a trip to Antarctica, breaking the sustainability blame cycle and becoming accountable. And we also discussed unconscious bias as a filter requiring greater diversity at a leadership level. Hi, Sam. Welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me along. I thought I would start our conversation today by asking you about your 2016 experience with Homeward Bound, an extraordinarily unique STEM leadership program, which culminated in an expedition to Antarctica with 75 other female leaders from around the world. The trip focused on leadership, strategic skills and global climate science, focusing on the role of women in leadership globally. Fabian Datner, founder of the program, has said, the most sustainable proposition we have is women at the leadership table. First of all, can you tell me about that experience and perhaps reflect on the nexus between gender equity and environmental sustainability, which was the focus of this program? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was on the first trip for Home Without. It's actually a 10-year program. Obviously, it has a few interruptions with COVID, but the, the big goal is to have a 1,000 women go through Home Without. Um, and we already have a network of about 400 women around the world, which is it's pretty amazing. Um, and in cinemas right now, actually, there's a documentary about our trip um, called The Leadership, which is, I think it's a really interesting film to watch because it follows the story of a few women on the boat and they're in private sector, government, academia, and you can see the systemic barriers that women have faced. Um, It was an extraordinary trip. It really highlighted to me the barriers that we all face um, and the collaborative approach that women can take to solving problems. We talked about so much. I mean, over the two-week period, three-week period of the trip, we went through various leadership qualities that women have and how you can nurture those and how you can grow those. 
Um, but it just highlighted to me that we need more women in leadership roles in order to actually get to gender equity, in order to actually get sustainability onto the agenda. And I don't just mean, you know, we use stats like the number of women in ASX, you know, leading ASX companies. And I really realised on that trip, that's not where I want to go. That's not a, you know, it's almost like trying to fit women into men's roles. And that's probably one of the key things that I learned from that trip is that we have to stop trying to change women and to make women learn and to make women grow. But we have to shift a lot of the systemic barriers that stop gender equity. And that was probably one of the biggest epiphanies that I had from that trip and I could see everyone has their own biases. You know, we, we talk about unconscious bias being around us all the time, but I see those biases as filters for what gets through, what policy gets through. And if you've got everyone with the same filters in leadership positions, we can't get anything new. We can't get innovative ideas through. And so it's about trying to create more diversity in those filters and that's what we really need to do. So I could go on about that trip forever. I've met some amazing women, incredible network, and it, it really, um, that was my boot out of academia. I decided on that trip that I was going to leave the university and go out on my own. So it was it was definitely a life-changing trip for me. Wow. Well, now that you've touched on, I guess, um, the fact that you were in academia, um, you're now Principal Director at Campus Intuition, and I'm interested to hear what led you on the path to working in sustainability and your career leading up to your current role? Yeah, sure. I have anything but a really smooth career trajectory. Okay, uh, I started out in business and commerce. I started actually out in advertising, which is pretty hilarious. I, I, I um, did pretty well at uni and I got a six-month internship to New York to work in an agency over there. And it was actually during that six-month period, I was like, this is not for me. This is not where I want to be. Something doesn't feel right. I wasn't quite sure what it was. But I um, ended up probably spending about 10 years away from Australia working and living overseas in different business commerce roles. Um, And I had a pretty amazing opportunity in 2008. I had battling a a long-term illness and I had a life-changing surgery that just changed my life. And it was that moment that I decided if I get another chance, I'm going, to, I'm going to actually do something that matters. And I went back to uni and I studied environmental science. And then I went on to do a PhD in sustainable buildings and cities and a postdoctorate. Um, so I was sort of on track to be in academia, but it was actually the postdoc when I was doing that. We, we looked at evidence-based decision-making in design construction projects. And I realised that all of this data and all of this research is not actually getting out there like we you know we looked at what evidence is used on the field and I thought okay well I don't really want to be contributing to a body of research that might not necessarily be maximizing the impact um and again it was on that homeward bound trip I was in the innovation pipeline at Curtin University I'd been through their accelerator program I'd been sort of testing an idea and some of the way, well, I just do it, just, you know, it's so inspiring, you know, if you feel like you, you want to get out, just now is the time to do it. So that's when I came back. I was pregnant with my first son and I resigned. And it's not like, you know, campus intuition didn't just start. It's been a three-year journey, stops, starts, ups, downs, figuring out how do I think my research into the market. Because um, you come out of academia and you, you know there's all these problems you have to solve but it doesn't just happen like that. The market has to actually want you to solve that problem. And that's probably where I found the most difficulty because we have these wicked sustainability problems and I wanted to solve them all. 
but you have to actually find a pathway to, to make that sustainable. And so it's taken me about three years to get to where I am now. And I've joined up with some other co-founders who are based in London last year and we formed a new company and, and that's where I am now. Wow. And so leaving academia, that was actually a conscious decision, was it, to try and make more of an impact in industry? It was. And I don't, I mean, you know, there is some great research at universities. I'm not saying it's not necessary. Um, but the little niche that I was working in, it just wasn't the same because you could see publications coming out. If they had a sexy headline, they would make an impact and people would take them up. But nobody looked at the research and said, what's the sample size? How was that experiment set up? Is it, can it be repeated? Um, and once I started to understand the validity of research more, and that was the interesting part of having a research career, I was like, oh, this is crazy. This doesn't, the industry is governed more by trends and what people are, you know, other people are doing than by evidence. And so that's where I felt maybe I could have more impact being out there on my own. So I think um, we'll come back to that particular research project soon. But before we do, you've talked already about your research and, and you've certainly made an impact in that field. And you've also been the recipient of a number of awards, especially relating to innovative technology and tools. I'm interested to know, what does it mean for you to be a sustainability leader? And how are you finding and using your agency to advocate for change? You know, I don't have one set thing. Um, I think it's been trial and error for me. Probably the most interesting thing in coming out of academia was you're no longer backed by a big institution. And so how I really tried to influence change was going into organisations like Property Council. I tried to become members or attend events. But I felt like I still came up against these barriers being on your own, being a starter. Those organisations represent the views of their members and they do some, some great work but I didn't find it particularly innovative and I didn't find there were were particularly easy pathways for me to get out there. So I actually stopped involving myself in a lot of the associations and I thought I'm just going to go in my own way and see how I can do this and just started putting my hands up for things. So I'm on the State Design Review Panel for Western Australia. Again, it's another thing like Antarctica. I looked at it and thought they'll never pick me, but I'm just going to go for it various awards and some media. So that's helped start to build a bit of traction in the market, but it's taken a while to get there because I feel like you really have to build that trust and respect for any idea that you have to really get traction. And that's, yeah, that's probably been the biggest thing I've learned, but, it's you know, it's a slow process. You want it to happen straight away, but it, it just takes a while to build that network. I'd like to talk about your experience in relation to female representation and diversity in leadership. You've mentioned already some of the systemic barriers that women face. Have there been challenges or opportunities in your career that you have felt have been significant to your leadership journey? Yeah, so I'll start with the challenges. Don't let me go on with the challenges for too long (laughs) because there have been some wonderful opportunities as well. I think... um, Becoming a mother was what really highlighted to me how things are still so unbalanced. And, I, and you know, as a you've got your own startup, you're not in a nine-to-five office job, so I found caring duties tended to fall to me and I took up the responsibility for a lot of that and you end up juggling quite a lot. And COVID has highlighted this, that women are doing great things, but then you get all of these caring responsibilities that fall onto you. And you can't, you've got to drop something. You can't hold everything up in the air at once. And that is something I really felt. And I really felt some bias towards me as well, particularly when I was pregnant with my first son. I had 
we've had a meeting with a potential client and they just looked at me and said, well, we'll see you in a couple of years. And I wanted to cry because I'd worked so hard to get to that point. But you're just judged. And when you're working in, you know, construction, building is a male-dominated industry. So you are judged when you walk in a room. You're judged with how you act. You're judged in a very different way. And it's so hard to get through that. I think even in the innovation space, it's really dominated by venture capitalists. Often it's male-dominated. And um, this, you know, there's a lot of wonderful work of, of VC organisations that are now trying to recruit women in because you just see things differently. You might have a problem that you've experienced as a woman and you're coming up with an idea to solve that and you need someone who understands that and goes back to that bias and filter thing that I was talking about. So lots of challenges, I think, that have come up. And, again, it's, you know, I've actually joined up with my new co-founders and men that have been working in the industry for a long time and that's made it a lot easier to get in the door, which... You know, I hate to say it, but it's just what I've had to do to, to get going. But opportunities as well, I would say I also have some amazing men who have become mentors that have been game changers for me. They've you know, been more than willing to help me. It's not like this judgment is all around you. There are people out there that want to help. And if I didn't have those mentors, I wouldn't have gotten to where I was. Um, and it just, I just reached out and asked for help. And, they, you know, some people say no, but some people say yes, and the ones that said yes have have really changed the trajectory for me. You just have to, I don't know, I've just learned to not be too scared. Yeah, you're going to get rejected by some people, but you just have to just give it a try. Yeah. Looking at leadership more broadly, how would you characterise sustainability and environmental leadership in the construction and development industry? I'm particularly interested to hear your perspective on how you think we're tracking and where we can improve as an industry. I mean, you know, buildings are responsible for nearly 40% of global emissions. That's not including other infrastructure. Um, I think we've made some progress, but we have made nowhere near enough progress as we should be making. And there's not one party to blame. Everyone needs to take responsibility for this. Where, I mean, where I got into this field was I was doing my master's on the validity of green building certification systems. That was part of my master's thesis. So I started to look for data and evidence on do green rating systems actually deliver lower carbon in buildings? And this is quite some time ago. And I couldn't find the data. I said, but this is crazy. So you get a you get a green certification, but you might not actually be reducing carbon. What's going on here? And that's when I that was sort of the backbone of my PhD as well, was looking at existing buildings and design versus actual operation. We still haven't closed that gap. There's still not enough accountability that what you were designing is actually going to perform as intended. We still have this big performance gap. So I think there's so much more we can do that. And I get a little bit scathing of the awards that my bugbearers awards that we give out to projects without having some of this accountability in place because we're incentivizing the wrong thing. Um, we're incentivizing sexy legacy buildings and projects that might not actually be doing the best that they can. And I think we have to get a lot firmer on that. Um, you know, but we're starting to see, I mean, circular economy is coming out more. We're starting to see life cycle analysis in buildings, but I just still feel like it's too slow. Yeah. So accountability is a huge part of that. I wonder, do you have any ideas of how that can change, how we can change the industry quicker? I, I find there's this constant circle of blame. It's the client's fault. They didn't, they didn't really understand what, we have to do to deliver a green project. It's the architect's fault. They didn't really design it 
properly as the engineers called. I think that one way to do this is just to start collaborating more effectively. And Christiana Figueres, she was actually a, a, one of the mentors for Highwood Bound. She negotiated the Paris Climate Agreement. She talks about this concept of radical collaboration. And I, I don't think we do collaboration very effectively. We talk about collaboration. But what I've seen working in this space is everyone is very protective of their commercial data. And you'll go to a conference and people stand up and they talk about how great the projects are, but people don't really talk about the lessons learned. And I love it. I have so much respect when people get up on a stage and they can tell me, we thought it would do this, but it actually did this, and this is what we learned from it. Um, and I think if we can start sharing some of those lessons and some of the data from projects outside of the direct design team or even within the design team, and that's what I found really interesting in this space. I'll do a post-occupancy on a building, I'll deliver the results, and I can't even get it shared to all the parties who worked on that building because they've all moved on to different projects. So we have to really start looking at not being so afraid of the repercussions if something doesn't work because I think that's how you learn so much. So I'd love to see more collaboration happening between all the parties. Yeah. And how do you think that kind of collaboration can be incentivized? Like does that have to be policy or regulation driven or is that kind of market driven to actually get everyone to be willingly involved? <laughs> I think, you know, it's really hard and I wish I had an answer for this because it's very hard for someone to take the first step in doing this. I used to think it was policy, so I was all about policy and then after working in government, I was like, this is not going to move quickly enough. So I've flipped towards market-driven. And you can see what happens with market-driven. You can see how neighbours really started predominantly market-driven, Green Star, all of the building certification systems and more recently Well and FitWell, they're really market-driven. But we just, it comes back to that accountability and transparency. I want to see awards. I think awards would be a big one because I think that is something that incentivizes bad behavior. Um, I just hate seeing magazine covers that are a beautiful photo of an empty building. It's, you know, it's not filled with the people who are, you know, and how they use the space. So we, we just have to be able to um, make the unsexy stuff more appealing, if that makes sense. You know, we have to, we have to get down to the nitty gritty and I think it would it would take a few projects to be able to share these lessons like at a conference. I'd love to see a conference around what didn't work and to actually share some of that. That it's, you know, this the sector, the industry is so fragmented now. There's so many competing parties, there's so many subcontractors that I think people are too scared to be seen as a failure to actually talk about some of this. So you've touched on your closing the loop project mm. and research. So that was for the Cooperative Research Centre for Low Carbon Living and the project aimed to connect the wealth of evidence that exists for high-performance building with decision and policy makers. Um, this is such an important step to help the implementation of proven sustainability practices. Has the research made an impact in the uptake of sustainable practices by the industry, do you think? I think it does, and I have changed my perspective on this as well. I mean, when I said... I left academia because I didn't want to contribute to a body of research that ends up behind a firewall. All the people working on that project, so we had Hassel, Brookfield and Acom, um, along with a whole load of academics in there as well. All of those people learnt something from that project. So for me, I didn't end up in academia, but I've been out there and I've, you know, I talk at conferences, I publish articles, I've 
created a couple of startups just based on that research. So I do think it, it does and that perhaps the way that we measure and think about impact just needs to shift a little bit because academics are largely judged on your publication rates, whereas um, I think I've probably had more impact within industry than I would have if I'd just published a paper. And we've had a couple of PhDs that have come out of that as well. And I built a network from that where I can bounce ideas off people. What was really interesting, what we tried to do with that project is we looked at how evidence is assessed in the medical field. So there's a, there's a cock, it's called the Cochrane Collaboration. It's, it's basically a way that evidence is measured to see how rigorous it is. So that's when you're looking at the sample size and the setup of the, the project and things like that. And so we compiled a whole lot of research from this environment and we tried to build something similar to that. We just realised we don't do this very well. We don't research systematically enough. You can't repeat a lot of the experiments. Every experiment is set up very differently. You might do an experiment on an office at a university that has a few people and then you do it on a corporate office in a city. So there's just so many variables. And it just really made me think differently about evidence and I think that's what's gone on. We've got a, a couple of PhDs still working in academia and publishing on this but, and it's made quite a significant impact on their lives. So, yeah, it's slow but I do think it's making an impact. There does seem to be a big gap between the research that we have and the knowledge that we have and implementation. Yeah, yeah there definitely is. And um, yeah. this is, I, I think, again, that Unis talk about collaborating with private sector and having run a project where we collaborated with private sector, you realise the challenges. They've got different timelines, different stakeholders, different budgets, different goals, and trying to bring these parties together is actually really challenging. In in private sector, you're used to delivering something in three months, not two years, whereas you're a researcher, you're there to, like, think deeply about these problems and you need to really get into the literature and understand the problem and untangle it. So I think when we talk about innovation between these two sectors, there has to be a midway. Like, we have, we have to come together and actually realise that both parties have to, have to give up a little bit of that flexibility in order to, to really innovate together. In your research role at Curtin University, you were the WA project lead for the Sustainable Built Environment National Research Centre project Greening the Built Environment in 2014, which studied a number of case studies in Australia. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that project. Yeah, so that was um, after my Master's of looking, wanting to focus on existing buildings, that project came up and we developed a tool that looked at all of the factors that drive building performance. So it wasn't just the technical side, but it was like policy and corporate culture of the organisations within those buildings, the human experience of the project, facility managers and, and their role. You know, that's when I realised, oh, my, there are so many people involved once you hand over an asset and over the lifetime of an asset. And it's very difficult to ensure that this asset continues to perform at a certain level. And, you know, the, the issue of split incentives came up very clearly when you have someone who owns a building, a tenant, a subtenant, a facility manager, a property manager, um, and it's very difficult to have everyone on the same page because they're all trying to do something something different. So it was a wonderful learning experience. And we built a tool that we tried on a few projects where we engaged with all of these different parties. And that was actually you know, what I initially tried to get out into the industry and I realised, oh, it's just there's too many people involved. Um, but it was on that project that the human experience in buildings really struck me and I was assessing an old government building and I walked in and there was a guy wearing a hat 
because the fluorescent light was too bright in this windowless room. Hmm. And he just he would wear that hat every day because he'd get headaches from the light, if not. And that was actually a turning point for me when I went, this is crazy. So we talk about productivity and you know, human resources talk about productivity in a relationship with your manager and relationship with your colleagues. No one is really looking at how this space affects that person's productivity and assessing that particularly well. And I just became hyper-vigilant to the human experience in spaces after that and that's where I started to follow. Um, and, I mean, there's a whole movement now of neuroarchitecture and starting to understand how people physically, physiologically respond to their environments and that's where I, I guess, built the niche. Like all of the other information I gained from that project was wonderful but really started to focus in on that human experience side. Yeah, well, delving a little bit further into that niche of the human experience in buildings, how do you think that environmental sustainability and user experience can go hand in hand? And I'm wondering if this relationship can actually help support or build a business case that encourages sustainability. Definitely. I mean, I I stopped talking about sustainability. I started talking more about health and well-being because I found, you know, four years ago, it just wasn't the appetite to talk about sustainability and climate change. Just couldn't really mention it. So I started focusing on health and well-being, and I just noticed I would get attention so much more quickly. People were a bit over hearing about sustainability and climate change. I feel like it's come back up in people's minds now, but then people just didn't want to hear about it. Um, and it was working with one client, and we collected sick leave data across all of their buildings, and we aggregated it. And they were blown away looking at the sick leave data. We were able to actually look at some of the poorer spaces and show that the sick leave was higher. It's not necessarily a correlation. We weren't able to go into it in that much detail. Um, but that's, that, that started that process for me of linking these two areas together. But I think if we understand human behaviour, we can build so much more effectively. And um, you've probably seen it. I've definitely seen it. New buildings finished oh, it's not working quite as we thought it would, so we'll have to refurbish it. So there's this constant waste in the building life cycle because we're not really building how people want or what people need. We don't understand human behaviour. and People just aren't logical. You know, I find even the way that consultation for projects is done sometimes, it's very future-based. Like, okay, so we're designing a new office. Here's the floor layout. What do you think? What would you guys need in it? Well, um, you know, what do you think would be really good? And people are giving you information based on something they haven't experienced yet. Um, they haven't really felt it. They haven't been in that space. And then you're designing a very logical design based around that. Whereas if we understood a bit more the idiosyncrasies about how humans behave and respond to things, it's very difficult to plan logically like that. So you have to observe how people use space. And that's what I think... Um, I mean, what we're trying to do now with the campus experience work is we collect this kind of data from students about how they interact with their campus environments. And we're able to start to aggregate this all up and start to predict how students might respond to something that you're designing based on the past data. And that's where I think there's going to be some really interesting growth into the future. Um, and so we're just designing more effectively. I think as well probably, I mean, I talked about sharing data but I think focusing more on iterative and flexible design before we go and build $150 million new buildings. So just as an example, we're working with the uni in the UK. They've had to, like most unions, they've had to pause a lot of their capital works because of COVID. 
so instead of a brand new building, we've picked three sites up around the campus and we've done half a million pounds of work in just lifting and activating these spaces based on what the students told us. So we looked at the data and said, okay, this is what they're unhappy with at the moment. So let's just spend a little, a fraction of the money you'd be spending on a new building and try out some stuff. And then you can adopt that and you can put that into the new building. So I'd like to see more of that, that kind of iterative approach rather than a bricks and mortar building that's going to be there for 40 to 50 years that might not actually be solving the problem. So planning better and testing out ideas before the final design to avoid redoing it really quickly. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we were just talking about that project, um, Greening the Built Environment, which was 2014, and you have mentioned that even just four years ago there was not very much interest in the word sustainability. So I'm quite (laughs) interested to hear from you about the trends in the last decade and um, how you think that the outlook and action has changed in the last few years. I mean, I'm going to try and sound optimistic here. (laughs) I love seeing that every day on the news now there is something about climate change. It's not a question anymore of whether climate change exists. It's it's more like how are we approaching it? You know, but in saying that, it's pretty devastating, I think, how government's approach to climate change and just, you know, recently the announcements on investment in gas is just yeah. it's just one example or the incentives in place for COVID of you know, we're seeing new build new buildings go up, new residential homes go up, yet we're still not making sure that these are well insulated or that they're designed particularly well or that density is done right or that we've got amenity and community infrastructure. So I think the community really want this, but our government drivers are not matching up. So I'm not feeling as confident as I did. You know, I was hoping seeing what happened with COVID, I was hoping this would be a really big shift, that this was our time to really embrace this. But, you know, we are seeing some market-driven changes and I think we're seeing a lot more companies. There's so many renewable energy companies. There's, there's so much happening. Like Architects Declare um, is a huge movement of architects starting to respond to climate change. So I think, you know, there's, there's that response from the market. We just need more of that leadership in place, though, for this to really happen. Um, and it makes me sad. I mean, I'm, I'm working in the UK at the moment and there's definitely more of a drive over there. Any grant, I just apply for some grants and you have to prove that your project has an environmental benefit. Otherwise, they're not going to fund you. We just don't have that here. Yeah. So um, that's a good segue into my next question, which is about the role that various organisations play. So you've said that you're particularly passionate about innovation and that there is an abundance of research on climate change that needs stronger uptake in the industry. What do you think needs to happen to facilitate this uptake by industry? So I I touched on this a little bit before. It leads back to that venture capital male-dominated environment, which again is changing. But I found it interesting when I first went into this innovation space. You know, I'd never really, I didn't know anything about startups. It was a whole new world to me. Um, It's very unicorn-based. It's very like, let's find the next global tech that's going to take over the world and make us squillions of dollars. And I actually disengaged from the startup innovation community for a while because I found it was was just too much talk like that. And I felt like we, we have to do things differently. It's not just about making a lot of money. We have to actually make an impact as well. And I remember I was at an event with a panel of VCs, all men, and I asked what they thought of ethical investment. 
one of their filters for ethical investment, and they said, we don't invest in pornography or gambling. And there was this kind of this silence. I felt it particularly from the women. That's it. That's your threshold for ethical investment. Like, what? You know, that, that was a few years ago, but um, it just shows you what's lying underneath that decision-making. So what's really good is that we're seeing a lot more impact investment coming online, and this is big in the U.S., um, it's coming into Australia now. So people are looking to invest in technologies and innovations that will make an impact, not just money. And that's where I hope we go more into the future, and that's where I see a lot of women operating in that space. They're coming up with some amazing ideas to not just environmental issues, homelessness, poverty, like there's some, some amazing um, innovations and we just need to get more support for that. And people just need to, just moving away from that capitalism that you've got to make you know, a crazy amount of money that you don't really need to make that much money, but, you know, balancing this impact and, and capital. Yeah. I, I do hope we start to see kind of that systemic shift towards better investment. Yeah. With the construction industry probably a target for COVID stimulus, what opportunities do you see for how to best utilise this investment to assist a shift towards a more sustainable industry? You've mentioned the UK, for example, has requirements on their COVID funding that projects actually have to prove that they meet certain environmental criteria. I'm interested to hear from you how the economic stimulus might assist the shift towards a more green industry. It's been interesting watching some of the announcements that have been made. I mean, I feel like in the eastern states you've had more investment into public infrastructure, bike paths, public transport from COVID than we have. And it's been, I've got a friend working for the city of Sydney and she sent me some photos of the work they're doing. And it's been this shift away from sort of a two to three year project to get bike paths in to six months, they're in, they're done because, you know, that's the priority. We haven't had that in Western Australia and that's been a bit disappointing. We've had a lot of funding announcements for new infrastructure, really road-based, not so much public transport. And that, I think, is a really big missed opportunity. This is where I hope we start to see more health and wellbeing metrics coming into it because if we had everyone trying to work on bike or public transport, we know the health stats are there, so I don't know why we're not doing more of this. So I, I want these funding announcements to look beyond economic stimulus over the next two to three years, but over the next 10 to 15 years to actually change some of these really big systemic issues that we have of urban sprawl, um, congestion, poorly designed houses and buildings. We've got to try and actually solve some of these issues that we know are there, but that we just seem to keep ignoring. Yeah. And I don't know what the answer is because I feel like this is what the community wants. It's there, you know, you can see we've got a local project done in Fremantle. We've got a, a roads project that tried, our main roads are trying to get off the ground. And there's been a huge backlash from the community because they want better public infrastructure and cycling and walkways. But it just seems to be like this. The, the policymakers seem to be really out of step with, with the community and where they're going. And I feel like COVID has just propelled community to understand more about how their local area affects their well-being when, it, when you're stuck at home suddenly realize oh I don't actually have a walking path near me I don't have a bike path I can't I don't have that amenity like a local cafe um, I'm actually not in a great neighborhood area and I'd like there to be more investment in this but I don't know how we bring this to you know the policymakers and community needs together more effectively and I guess to meet our commitments to the Paris Agreement and other 
commitments, there does need to be a huge investment in sustainability and in um, kind of shifting the industry towards more green practices. And so it seems like this COVID stimulus would be the perfect opportunity, but perhaps we're missing that opportunity at the moment. Yeah, I think we really have missed it. I mean, I think about us, we're in a little timber frame cottage. You know, we've gone off gas now, we're all electric, we've put in solar panels. Why didn't we incentivize people to improve their existing homes? Like if we could have had some kind of, you know, 25% contribution towards insulation, it would have made such a difference. We would have snapped that up and instead it just didn't seem to align at all with environmental outcomes. But also those environmental outcomes hit people financially and I just there still seems to be this disconnect between you buy, okay, you're building a really cheap house and that's great. It's, you know, you can afford it, you can get a mortgage, but the operational cost of that building over time, but it doesn't have trees around it. It's not um, aligned properly on the block. It doesn't have insulation. We're still not seeing that long-term impact. Yeah, definitely. And those kind of projects, it is quick to get that money into the economy. So it's perfect for stimulus because there's not a big lead time or planning time. They're quick, but then they actually improve standard of living and improve operational costs as you say so you know that would be so beneficial and yeah I hope it's not an opportunity lost I know me too me too so the COVID crisis has caused such a significant shock to our lives our cities and built environment structures you work in the higher education sector which has been severely affected by lack of student mobility internationally what are the ramifications for the sector and how does this affect your work of trying to promote more sustainable campuses? It's, it has been a phenomenal shock to higher ed. I mean, nobody on their risk analysis forecast what a pandemic could do. And so we've seen universities respond in a myriad of ways and I've been you know, tracking this around the world, looking at campus reopenings and how they're responding. And I mean, from a built environment perspective, we're seeing them take their foot off the pedal and slow down. Like new buildings are being paused, capital budgets, you know, all the money that can possibly be taken out of capital budgets is being taken out. So from a sustainability perspective, it's actually quite good. Um, you know, looking at the UK alone, they had the equivalent of five new universities constructed in 2013 because of the job and enrolment. So, you know, years ago maybe... of people went to university and now 45% of people go to university. So universities have just been expanding rapidly to accommodate for all of this student growth. And you can walk through any university and you can see that it's not exactly thought of particularly well or planned off particularly well. You know, you have really old, beautiful buildings. You might have, in particular with the older universities, you have some of that 70s and 80s weird sort of brutalist style architecture and then you might have the modern legacy buildings but most universities you feel like you're walking through two or three different cities so it's not being particularly well planned strategically and space across universities is not particularly well utilized because they are like managing small cities and there's often spaces that universities don't even know exist so what it's doing I went to a meeting last week with the um in the UK, again, the Association for University Directors of the States, like getting very introspective. So what do we do with these existing campuses? We don't have 150 million in surplus to actually build all those buildings we're going to build. So what? how do we actually use our existing estate more effectively? So it's perfect for sustainability. 
And that's right where we're working. So we get students to help us identify areas on a campus that can be improved. So we might get a 1,000 students to give us feedback about all the different spaces that they use across a campus, libraries, cafes, teaching spaces, and their trip facilities. And they tell us, like, this, this is good, this is bad, and then we aggregate all of that data from the university. So I'm actually really excited. I mean, obviously students aren't all on campus right now, but next year I think we can actually make a really big impact. And I love seeing like the UK University as an example, I just love seeing their focus on the existing spaces and they're realising that they can improve student experience without having to spend millions and millions. The work of the University of Melbourne has been really interesting as well. So we had a 1,000 students across a couple of their campuses give feedback and we've been turning that into evidence-based design guidelines. So this is what students like in their teaching spaces, for example. This is what you as a contractor, you need to make sure that you're building this in. This is what actually gets the, the makes a better learning environment for students. So I feel like this pause and this strategic reset is, is really good timing. Yeah, that's interesting. So to improve efficiency in terms of how to utilise your campus, but I guess economic efficiency can create environmental efficiency. Yeah, that's exactly, it's exactly it. And taking universities away from planning projects on small areas of the campus, you know, you, you do a consultation for a university for a new building that engages people involved in this new building. We're trying to go across the whole campus ecosystem. So that has those benefits for efficiency. And I can, you know, you can think of another client that they delivered a beautiful building with all these great informal study spaces and students just flocked into this building and everyone got annoyed because it was overutilised. But if you understand the whole ecosystem and you realise there's actually a lack of these kind of spaces all across the campus, that's what we should be focusing on and maybe we're not going to solve that with this $100 million new building. So let's actually look at our budget and see if we can solve it at an ecosystem level. And that's what I'm excited about and what we're really hoping to shift the university planning perspective, give them a new avenue to solve some of these issues that it doesn't have to be solved with a new building. You can actually just make some small, low-budget changes that will have a pretty high impact to the day-to-day use of the space. As a sustainability leader, you have the opportunity to help set the agenda for what we need to be focusing on in the development and construction industries. What are your main sustainability priorities for the next year and next five years? So I think... Probably the biggest one that we've talked about is this use of data and evidence. You know, I've been trying for years in various formats to get evidence into decision-making, and I think I'm finally getting it. I'm finally kind of understanding how we, different ways that we can do it. That's definitely one of my avenues. And I don't just mean collecting data and they're not doing anything with it, but, which is what I see with a lot of smart buildings, smart cities, smart infrastructure projects. There's some amazing tools to collect the data. What do you then do with it, though? Like, So it's not just in an app or in a spreadsheet somewhere, but let's actually make sure that this has an impact. Um, I think the other the other one is really circular economy and starting to understand and communicate with clients these benefits. If you don't build new, these are the actual environmental savings that you're making. So getting them to focus more on those existing assets. Um, and then I think the other one is introduction of more of these health metrics, health and wellbeing metrics into the conversation and giving clients ways to actually measure outcomes that they can use in their marketing, but that actually measure. And that's what we love with this campus experience work. We've got ways of measuring student satisfaction with the campus environments. And they love that data and they love being able to compare themselves against other universities. 
um, that we're starting to find different ways of, of introducing that health and experience, that human side of the data into it. And it's you know, still an experiment. I'm still learning how to do that most effectively. But I think the more we bring health and sustainability together, um, just so much more room for advocacy having those two is like a powerhouse that we can get. We can grow the stakeholders and we can, we can grow the impact of the sector by having that. And that will certainly be hugely important post-COVID. Touching again on the theme of female representation in environmental leadership, do you have any advice to those who are striving to make a difference in the field? I think probably those mentors are a really big one. I think finding a mentor, just one or two people, and, you know, you don't go and ask them to be a mentor. They're just someone that you can go to to ask a few questions. And I approached both of my main mentors just for some career advice. I wasn't actually looking for a mentor and then we struck up a friendship. I think that's been really good. I think just giving things a go, you know, letting go of imposter syndrome and feeling like you're going to fail. If you've got an idea and there's something that you want to try, just go for it. Tried like three, three or four different avenues. You're going to fall on your bum. I've fallen on my bum so many times. I've embarrassed myself. I've screwed up. And it hurts for a while and you crawl into your corner and you have a bit of a cry and then you get out and you just keep going. We just need that courage and that bravery, I think, to, to come through. And that's how we're going to break down a lot of these walls as well for women to get into more leadership positions. Just don't be too meek. Just put yourself out there. That's great advice. Finally, I'd like to end on a question about inspiration. If you could name one thing that has been instrumental in shaping the kind of leader you are today, it could be a book, a place, a person, an idea or an experience, what would it be? I think it would be sitting, one day of sitting on that boat in Antarctica where I realised that all of these women, these incredible women around me, professors, you know, the CEOs, we all had this imposter syndrome and I had crippling anxiety getting onto that boat from when I applied for Home Without. I thought, I'm not good enough. I'm not a real scientist. I don't work in a lab. I don't deserve to be here. And that just plagued me and I stepped onto the boat with that anxiety and I just felt like I, didn't, I shouldn't be here. And then I had this moment when I realised that most of the women sitting around me felt the same and I just thought, this is stupid. We are all wasting this energy feeling like we're not good enough. And to just let go of that and to give things a try. You know, it was the combination of those few days where they, they were like, oh, you know, it's really inspiring the work you're doing. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to actually just quit and step out and give this a go. And if I screw up, then I'll find another job and I'll get back into academia or something. So it was, I guess it was a moment if we were all in this together. That sounds a bit too much like Trump, but you know, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> it's not a good quote for the time. And, and it was all ages, you know, we had like 20-year-olds up to 60-year-olds and it was just a wonderful moment that, that gave me the nudge that I needed. Yeah, what an inspiring experience to end on. <laughs> Sam, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your insights and all the best for the next few weeks. Thank you so much. Design Conscious is a podcast created by me, Sarah Lawler, as part of the 2020 International Women's Day Scholarship, supported by NAWIC. Mm-hmm.